0: Good morning, morning. morning. Truro has always felt like home, still does. So good to be here with you, and congratulations on uh, your new rector. (laughs) I hope you'll just uh, join together in a united way under his leadership, pray for him. Uh, He's going to do a very good job for you. I trust him. Mm. And uh, I thank him for having me in today to be with you. So, we're talking this morning about the prayer of Jesus that he prayed just before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died. St. John was with him. Now, you may have had the opportunity somewhere along the line to be with someone who is approaching death. It's a holy time. I had an opportunity to be with my own father. He was 65, I was 22. Didn't know he was dying, but knew he was very, very weak and knew that something significant was happening. I came home from um, exams in graduate school. He had had surgery. I went to see him in the intensive care unit. was struck at how weak he was, uh, but how radiant he was. And there were three things that he wanted to tell me. <laughs> um, first, he wanted to tell me that he had had a, a visit by the Lord Jesus in the hospital the lord had come to him and his experience of the presence of jesus was like nothing he had ever experienced and he said son if he had said it's time to come he said i would have gone joyfully it's like nothing i've ever experienced and then secondly he he wanted me to know not just that but he wanted me to know that he loved me a precious gift and thirdly, he wanted to be sure I married the right person. He said, uh, he said, son, how is Susan? That was Susan Alexander at that time. I said, she's fine, Dad. He looked at me, he said, marry that girl, boy. <laughs> I did. <laughs> 53 years ago. <laughs> if you have opportunity to be with someone who's close to death, you treasure it, you listen carefully, you ponder their words and all that they could have mean. I, I think that when someone is close to death, they're probably closer to God than you are at that moment, and it's good to pay attention. Well, that's the situation in the gospel today. Uh, John was there, and he had been listening extremely carefully to everything Jesus said. He kept track word by word, John 13. He- Jesus washed the disciples' feet, John 14, 15, 16, 17, all the way through the events of that last night, and no one had pondered or prayed over the the words of Jesus any more than John had. We can trust his account as being what he knew to be the facts of what Jesus said. I don't think there's been any chapter in the whole Bible that I've studied more over the last 50 years than John 17. I'm glad you've been looking at it over the last uh, few weeks. So this is the last of three messages for you on this chapter. And probably someone has pointed out that in this prayer of Jesus, we see not just a pattern for our own prayers, but that it in the three distinct sections of this prayer, Jesus is actually revealing to us three essential priorities for the Christian life. John 17, verses one to five, Jesus prays to the Father for himself and his own relationship with the Father. And then in verses six to 19, he prays for his closest brothers and sisters, the disciples, those whom he had devoted his greatest time and attention to, upon whom he was depending to carry out his mission. They were his family, they were his brothers and sisters. And then today in verses 20 to 26, he looks into the future uh, pondering the impact on the world that those disciples were going to have. And he prays for all the people who in the generations to come would become believers in Christ through the work of the original disciples. So I think about this that it at least it at least clarifies for us three essential priorities for the Christian life. A Christian has at least three priorities. One, to be in a deepening relationship with God, growing in our understanding of God, and trusting Him, and leaning upon Him, and obeying Him, and walking as closely to Him as we can. First priority in a Christian's life. Second priority is to be committed to my own family and friends in Christ, the body of Christ, those whom God has given me, uh, He's called me to be a part of in my life. Third priority is to serve Christ in the world by fulfilling my calling, by sharing the good news of Christ, by being a godly citizen, by doing the work that God has given me to do however I can, wherever I can. So commitment to Christ, commitment to the family of Christ, commitment to the work of Christ. Sometimes it's wise for a committed believer to step back and take a look at one's own life in terms of the three priorities. How am I doing? Am I putting too much emphasis on one and not enough on the other? Am I all involved in my prayer life, my walk with God, but I'm really not serving God in any significant way? Am I out of balance in some way? This morning, I want to speak to you about the, um, what Jesus prays in the final part of his prayer when he is thinking into the future. Now, it's not unusual to be thinking about the future when you know your end is approaching. I think my dad was looking into the future when he was concerned about who was I gonna marry. My mother, when she became an old lady, was thinking about the future and and she had a quilt and on the quilt were the names and birthdays of all of her grandchildren. And if she got to be older, she'd keep it spread out on her lap in the mornings. And that was her prayer list. And she would pray not just for her grandchildren, but for their spouses, for their future, for God's will in their lives. The older you get, it's not unusual that we we want to do what we can to bring about God's purposes in the future. So... There are just two important things about this part of the prayer that I want you to think about with me this morning. There's a lot more that we could say about it, but uh, just two things, really. It's just six verses, and I'm not even going to go through all the six verses with you. But in John 17, verse 20, I want to read this one verse. I want you to hear what he says. He's been praying for the disciples, and then he makes the transition, and he says, Now, I'm not praying on behalf of these alone, but also for those who will believe on me through their word. So, isn't that interesting? He had absolutely no doubt that the apostles would carry out the mission he had entrusted to them. And there would be untold numbers of people who would come into God's family because the gospel would be preached. He had great confidence in those he had left behind. They had entered into a new way of life and he knew that he could depend upon them because he knew they truly loved him. Not perfect, didn't have it all together, didn't understand everything, but he knew that they had love for him that was true. And so he knew that they were going to fulfill the commission he had given them. And it reminds me of what Paul said. You know the little letter of Philippians where Paul begins? You know that chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, where Paul says, um, I am confident that he who has begun this good work in you will bring it to completion. That's the confidence that Jesus had. That's the confidence I want my mentors, my parents to have in me. That's the confidence I wanna have in my children, my grandchildren. So we, we pray for them. Wouldn't you like that to be said of you that those who have shown you the way have loved you and encouraged you to keep growing in these three areas of priority That your leaders, your parents, your mentors, wouldn't you like them to be confident that you've not just begun with Christ, but that you'll carry on and will even complete the works that God has given you to do? Jesus knew his disciples would serve him faithfully, and they would bear great fruit down through the generations, but he still prayed for them. They still needed his prayerful support because it's Never easy. But he knew that they would be faithful. And, and how did he know? He knew because when a person really comes to Christ, when someone really gets the gospel and they just stalk right in the face, they realize, oh my gosh, God loves me. I'm such a jerk and a screw up, but God loves me. And he, he's giving me the chance to walk with Him forever. When someone gets the gospel, then they become changed people. And nothing is more important to them than sharing that message with others. You know how to be an effective witness for Christ? You know how to be an effective messenger of the gospel? It's not just to go out and learn some methodology the key is just to really love people. Just to really love this person who's in front of you, whoever it is at that time. To love them enough to look at them, to listen to them, to hear what they're saying, to reflect on what they're saying, to take a deep interest in them, to share in what's what going on in their life. And if you, will love, if you will learn to love people around you that way, you will have plenty of opportunity to share with them What Christ has come to mean in your life and how he can come to be at the center of their life. If the church isn't actively evangelizing people, it isn't the church. But it's not because it's a law, it's because it's a want to, because he loves us. So is Truro going to be a church in which people are sharing the good news of Christ? Do you ever pray for the future of Truro? This church has been a force. This church has been an influence for Christ and his kingdom, a powerful force. It is now in some ways, but I think some very stronger days are ahead of you. Okay, so that's the first part. We've only got two points, okay? (laughs) That's the first part. Jesus had confidence in those who had truly been committed to him. Here's the second part. Verse 20, 21, 23. I'm not asking on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Here's what he's asking. That they all may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And verse 23, I in them, thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them, even as thou didst love me. How could any group of Christians be Perfect in unity. (laughs) I don't know. It's not, it's certainly not in terms of, I mean, you think about it. Think about the diversity of the church around the world across the centuries. Jesus gave the Great Commission to take the gospel, you know, not just to Americans, but to people in every nation, every racial group, every ethnic group. And he said, he prayed that we would be one. I don't think it's an ecumenical unity that he's talking about. I don't think it's a you know conformity to a certain standard of uh, dress or how we worship or anything like that. It's something much re- richer and deeper than that. It's not organizational unity. The unity that Jesus offers us as being one in spirit and one in mission. Jesus described it as being like his union with the Father. One in spirit, one in mission. In one another, he said. We're, we're in one another. Father's in me, I'm in he, you, a vital part of one another. This is hard to get. <laughs> How, what is that? You know, the Bible speaks about people being one with another. For instance, the Bible says that in marriage, a man and a woman become one. And as they live into that life together, as they enter into what it means to be one flesh, usually, if God blesses, they have children. So their oneness is expanded. That's oneness too. Those children are one with their parents. They are the same flesh, the same shared a DNA. They're one blood. My son and I are one. My blood is in him. The same blood, the same flesh. And because he belongs to Christ, we're both indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. We're, we experience oneness, even though we're two different people. In his later letter, John, in 1 John chapter 4, John explains that when we come to Christ and commit ourselves we are given the Holy Spirit. He is the one who makes us all one in the family of Christ. Let me read this, 1 John four thirteen. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. I know you know this, but Just as Jesus and the Father are one by the Holy Spirit, so are we. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, comes to dwell in us individually and as a whole. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. When you believed the gospel, Paul said, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Don't you know that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit? He's our unifier. John 1.12 says when we open up our lives to Christ, we become children of God. God becomes our father. Jesus becomes our older brother. And the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us and causes us to become one in being. His children who are one with him. So... So we're one in the Spirit with the Father and the Son and, and brothers and sisters one with each other. We know that in theory, but we need to know it in experience. So my son, is, my son is one flesh with me, but we're also one in the Spirit. He's not just my Son, He's my brother. So when Christ prayed this prayer, the Holy Spirit had not been given. They weren't yet one in the Spirit, but they would be very soon one Spirit of God within each of them that would propel them forward. Their oneness with one another, their love and faithfulness to Christ and to one another, their loyalty to one another, their commitment to help and provide for one another, that, that oneness really caught people's attention. It surprised people. It caused others to say, who are these people? And they listened to their preaching. So Jesus wants his people to realize that we are one body. And you hear this, Paul emphasizes it, John emphasizes it, Peter emphasizes it, James emphasizes it. The same spirit, the same mission, the same responsibility under Christ. That's why, for instance, St. Paul worked so hard to get all the churches in Asia to join in contributing their resources to help the impoverished mother church in Jerusalem because he wanted them to understand we're all one. And we have a family responsibility to one another. I expect a lot of you have had plenty of opportunities to travel in different parts of the world. And I've been in some pretty diverse parts of the world. I'm always fascinated to understand how different people are in their customs and in the way they dress, the way they express themselves, their traditions, how they relate to one another. However, as I've had opportunity to travel, and some of you have traveled much more than I have, as I've had the opportunity to meet with believers in various parts of the world, wherever I am, whether I'm meeting with um, house church pastors and members of house churches in China who have to meet in secret, quietly, or whether I'm in East Africa with believers who are anything but quiet and secretive in their worship gatherings, or whether you know you're in secular metropolitan Europe or rural Central America, I've realized whenever I've been with other believers in Christ in those places, whatever our differences, these are my people. This is my family. And our oneness matters a whole lot more than our differences. You might just be meeting under a tree somewhere with believers, and that's your family. I'll never forget the first time I was in Kampala, Uganda, back in the '80s, and I was, uh, I was, I was eating some Nile perch by candlelight in a little rundown house with a brother in Christ, a pastor and his wife, and it was very quiet. There was no electric power, and all of a sudden I heard. I heard out the window some singing. It wasn't very loud. I stopped and I listened. I said, what's that singing? And he said, oh, that's some of the brothers and sisters in the village down the hill. They meet on Thursday nights for fellowship. And I thought, wow, it's my family. These are my people. David marveled at the wonder of being a part of the people of God I love what he said in Psalm 16, verse 3. He he says, I'm talking about the saints. I speak about the holy people who are in the land. They're the noble ones. And then he said, they're the ones in whom is all my delight. God wants us to take delight in our family, our, our oneness with one another. It's not that all believers are, you know perfectly serving God or honoring Christ, but that, but that we're all loved by God. Jesus died for all of us. And as, as, as believers, however imperfect we are, keep coming back together to meet with Jesus week by week, year after year in times of hardship and plenty, humbly seeking to know Him better and asking to grow in faith, to be more fully devoted to Him, asking His help walking through life together, serving and supporting one another, a closeness and unity develops. Many of you have that with each other in this family. Back in the 70s when we lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, we were a young family. We were having young children. We were trying to figure out, how do you have a Christian family? What's that mean? How do you do it? So we invited about five other couples to come and start meeting with us. We're all in the same place in life. We said, let's try to figure out what a Christian family is and how do we get there? Okay, we've been gone from Pittsburgh for 50 years, 40 years anyway. We just spent a week together, that little group. We just spent a week together down in Florida a week before last. We're still meeting. We're one in Christ because we've discovered that oneness 45 years ago. This is what Paul calls in the book of Ephesians. He calls it the new community of God. The people who are being made into one new people because we've been born anew. We've experienced spiritual birth brought about by the Holy Spirit. Christ lives in us. And if we keep coming to him over and over again, turning to his word, learning more from him, we become a truly (laughs) new people. I've just been rereading a lot of C.S. Lewis lately. And uh, <clears throat> there's one place towards the end of mere Christianity where he talks about an experience he had. If you've read it, you might remember it. He talks about going to uh, early communion and uh, this is eccentric old, old fellow who uh, was kneeling across the aisle from him. And he had on uh, muddy rubber boots and a trashy old overcoat. And he had sort of an uncouth appearance. And and you know, Professor Lewis there and all his dignities kneeling there beside him, looks over him. And all of a sudden he had a sudden realization. Do you remember this? He said, That's my true brother in the Lord. And one day in heaven, he will be a man so clothed in heaven's glory and beauty that an earthling wouldn't even bear to be able to look upon him. And behold his beauty and wonder. Go, go to the end of mere Christianity and read, read Lewis's sections on the new men, the new people of Christ. I'll tell you, I, you know, being at Falls Church for 40 years was a huge blessing. Many, many blessings. But probably the greatest blessing is walking with a group of people for that many years and falling down and getting up and helping each other along and failing and succeeding and having to help one another along the way, finding Christ's help. Now, I just sit in the pew most Sundays and I watch a lot of the people I don't know now, but most of the people I know, I look at them and immediately their stories go through my mind. And I think about, you know, the trouble they had with their children. I think about illnesses. I think about griefs. And I think about how they, they struggle to reach out to Christ and to believe. And when they failed and when they succeeded, I look at them and I just say, Oh, God, the saints of God. What a blessing. What a blessing to be a part of your people. It's the love that develops among people in process over the years that goes deep and is so powerful. And when unbelievers experience it, they're drawn to it. I have time for one last story. Oh, always. Okay. (laughs) Um, We have a friend, a Polish friend, who lives in... He lives in Austria now. When Russia invaded Ukraine, Andrzej was uh, overwhelmed with grief, tried to understand what, if anything, he could possibly do. And he realized that he had lots of friends in Ukraine, and he knew pastors of lots of churches through Ukraine. And as, you know, infrastructure began to fall apart in Ukraine and things began to get bad, he thought, I, I, could, I could possibly take supplies to friends in Ukraine. And uh, he wrote us, he wrote others. Uh, many of us sent money Uh, the Anglican Relief and Development Fund sent lots of money to help him and when he was here in uh, February he said that they had taken over 300 van loads of food clothing medical supplies into the most dangerous parts of Ukraine and they took them to the churches he said he said it's it's mostly just old people there and pastors he said uh, uh, the, the, the mothers have left, the children have left, uh, the men are all fighting, and pretty much all that's there are the pastors keeping the churches and mostly older people. And uh, he said that they, they, they've realized that these are their people. This is our family in Ukraine, and we need to help them. And so they can't, they can't take, they take vans, and they can't put a red cross on them because they will be a target to be bombed, he said. Many of his friends have been killed, but he told me recently, he said that when he's been over there and he's visited the churches where they've distributed these resources that he, he's met people who were not believers, but who were coming to be a part of worship on Sundays. And he said, why are you coming? And they said, because this is the only place we find help or hope. My wife does some writing. She has a blog. She's on Facebook. And she heard not long ago from a woman in the far eastern part of Ukraine, an area that's now under Russian control. And uh, we've tried to be in touch with her. She's all alone. She said her horse ranch was destroyed. She said her mother was killed and a missile raid, her grandmother was killed. She said, the soldiers who are in charge, the Russian soldiers who are in charge are, I can't, I just can't tell you the way she described what her life is like. She was asking us to pray. Her name is Elena, Elena Babrova, And we've been doing our best to try to figure out is there any way her brothers and sisters in Christ in this part of the world can be of help to her. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. But it's our family there in those churches. And if we can help in any way, we should. Last thing I want to say is if you notice in verse 22, Jesus says, There's a kind of glory in this. When we truly reach out to brothers and sisters in real loving kindness, it is a glorious thing. Now the glory of God is the mighty presence of God. It was experienced by Moses on the mountain, by the 12 when they saw Christ transfigured. The glory of God is God's unlimited eternal uniqueness as our creator and maker of all things. And the glory of God tells us that there's nothing, there's no other power, there's no other person or presence like him. And if someone ever catches a glimpse of the glory of God, they can never be the same. Jesus is praying here that we ourselves might somehow share in the glory of God. I in them, thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. How do we experience the glory of God? Well, there's just something gloriously beautiful and rare about people who've been drawn into this great love, this great one love for Christ that's spilled over into our lives and has given them a fierce loyalty to one another and a passion to take care of one another. It's how Jesus wants us to experience something of the wonder of his relationship with the Father and our relationship with each other in the church. Now, you know, it's springtime and people are down there on, on uh, the, the Potomac and they're seeing the glory of God in those gorgeous white blossoms. My wife brought down a, a huge bouquet of daffodils the other day and I looked at it and I thought, the glory of God. The glory of God in her hands. Jesus said, the heavens declare the glory of God in their beauty and majesty and power. But another way of seeing the wonder and glory of God is whenever believers come together and truly love and care for one another. Sometimes the Bible describes the glory of God like fire. My roommate in seminary was a man named Clark Weiser. He's dead now. I visit his grave on Johns Island, South Carolina. He, He carried a card in his wallet And he showed it to me once. It was called the Fellowship of the Burning Heart. And he had been a part of the college group at Hollywood Presbyterian Church back in the 50s and 60s when Bill Bright and Don Mumal and Billy Graham and people like that were a part of that fellowship led by Henrietta Mears, a wonderful woman of God. And he told me about the, the fellowship they'd experienced together. It always struck me that they called it the Fellowship of the burning heart. In Luke 24, Jesus met with two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And you remember, he explained the resurrection to them and he taught them the meaning of the scriptures. And it's, it was the Holy Spirit that it says, set their hearts on fire. And Jesus intended that his brothers and sisters in every generation should carry that passionate love for God and loyalty to one another that would never be extinguished but only burn brightly. And you know, for a fire to burn brightly, it needs more than just one log. The logs need to be together, we need one another. I wonder, I just wonder if you're experiencing this. Loving, honest, challenging, encouraging, helping, healing relationship with one another. That's what God wants for us. And either you already know and you're experiencing this and you're saying, You're right, Yates. (laughs) Or you still need to learn and experience. We have to learn that other believers, wherever, are our family. And and you'll never grow up in Christ if you're living a solitary, isolated life. So I want to urge you, wherever you have opportunity, in this church or wherever, to experience some aspect of the family of Christ. Small group, uh, phone calls, connecting with one another. That's where we begin to experience the reality of Christ in our day. And that's when you begin to grow up in Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, help us. Help us to be fully in our own experience. Brothers and sisters who experience the oneness that you and Jesus share. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.